Let's pray and ask God to help me and you as we come to his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for what you reveal of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, in your word. Uh, we thank you that it shows us someone who can be trusted to save us completely and forever, to fit us to live in your presence by his death. We pray in your mercy that each of us, trusting Jesus, would know the joy of knowing what he has done for us. And Father, we pray that we would also know that Jesus is the saviour of all who will turn to him. Help us uh, in our weakness to hear and understand your word and help me in my weakness to speak it truthfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, as you've heard, we're going to think about Hebrews 10. Uh, well, the start of Hebrews 10. And in many ways, this passage, the passage you heard read, represents the climax and the conclusion of all that's been taught about Jesus since chapter 7. It summarises that uh, teaching and towards the end of the passage that was read, it starts to apply it to our lives. And after what's really been a pretty concentrated body of teaching with lots of ideas and lots of familiarity expected with the Old Testament, this passage allows me to ask you a series of important questions. Firstly, do you get what God has been teaching us about his son Jesus in these chapters of Hebrews? Do you see Jesus' greatness? Secondly, do you really get what God says Jesus, his son, has done for you? Not just as words, not just as ideas, but get it in your heart so that you know the freedom and the joy of trusting Jesus. And thirdly, have you let what God has done for you in his son start to show in your living? Now, uh, because this is a climactic summary, I'm actually just going to focus on the second question today and deal with the third question. We're going to hint at it at the end, you know how it shows, but deal with that third question next week. And we're going to start, though, by answering the first question, do you see Jesus' greatness, by reminding ourselves from verses 1 to 18 of the surpassing greatness of the salvation Jesus brings, which our author again brings out by continuing his contrast uh, or his comparison between what Jesus does and the provisions of the God-given old covenant. You know, the relationship God entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai, uh, the covenant that the author of Hebrews' first readers were very familiar with. Well, as you heard, our author starts by reminding his first readers and us of the point that he's been making since chapter 7. The law, and that is here, the whole Sinai covenant, the kit and caboodle, the agreement God made with the Jewish people, he says, just can't do the job. It can't make worshippers perfect. For since the law, verse 1, is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the people he's first writing to are basically kind of good people. They're people who've been trying to live by the rules and to do what's right. But he says the law, the old covenant and its sacrifices, and so also its priesthood, can never make perfect. Now, perfect here isn't talking about moral perfection, about the law turning them into people who will do God's will perfectly. Perfect is a much bigger idea. Uh, Perfect in Hebrews has the sense of being brought to the goal that God intends for his people so that they can truly live as his people in the land that he has promised them and live in his presence. So, yes, it does include a change of heart where his people will now love God from the heart and give themselves to do as he commands to be his holy people. Oh, and it includes freeing them from their debt to the law, redeeming them from the hold of sin and death. It includes being cleansed from the defilement of our sin, our disobedience to and rebellion against God. It catches up all those things and more. Perfection catches up all that God has promised his people to fit them to live in the new heaven and earth, in the new Jerusalem where God is present amongst them. Uh, To be perfect is to enjoy the fulfilment of relationship with God where we can live at peace with him. (laughs) It's in a sense enjoy the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden before the fall. To live with God, we need to be made perfect. But the law, he says, can't do that. In fact, it does the opposite. It demonstrates by the constant annual repetition of the Day of Atonement, those sacrifices he talks about in verse 1 that are continually offered every year, demonstrates that our sin is still there, that we're still sinners, that it's not been dealt with by those sacrifices. And that reminder, that continuing consciousness of sin, just drives us away from God, doesn't draw us to God, drives us away from God, makes us fearful, fearful of meeting him. May even as we consider our deaths, make us despairing. For that sacrifice tells us that objectively we're sinners and we deserve to be condemned. By the Holy God. And it wasn't because they were performing the sacrifices wrongly. No, it's by its very nature. That's his point. The, the provision of animal sacrifices by their very nature, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sins. Not the sin that defiles our conscience, our inner person. You see, those sacrifices taught that sin deserved death and could only be atoned for, dealt with by shed blood. But everybody knew the life of an animal was no final and effective substitute for the human life that was forfeit to the judgment of the law. So these sacrifices in the Old Covenant really were a temporary provision, a teaching aid, something like a shadow that points beyond itself to the true reality. It gives shape, general outline of what's coming, but no more. 
And of course, the shadow can never get you to your goal. The shadow of a horse won't carry you to your destination. The shadow of a warrior wouldn't deliver you from your captor. But in Jesus, he says, the real, the substantial, the deliverance always intended and foreshadowed in the provisions of the law has come. And just as the flesh and blood presence of the one you love surpasses their shadow, so Christ surpasses the provisions of the law. Now, you need to remember that when you're tempted, say, to put your confidence in religious rituals and religious works. You know, the external can seem so attractive, can't it? The sounds, the smells, the rich robes, so impressive, create a feeling of awe. And rituals can be so concrete, you know, doing something, not just listening, contributing, offering, even impressing. But actually, Jesus came to make the rituals and sacrifices of the old covenant, as we saw last week, obsolete. And as we will learn this week, verse 9, he came to abolish them. So when you're attracted to ritual, to thinking God ought to be impressed with what you're doing, why do you think God would be impressed by your made-up rituals if he's abolished his own? And actually, Jesus tells us, as we'll see in verses 18, 25, following the response he looks for to his sacrifice. So why do you think he would be impressed by you substituting what pleases and impresses you for what he commands of his people, a life of love and good deeds? So what is the real and true that Jesus brings what's the fulfillment of the types and shadows of the old testament that occurs in his ministry the author sums it up for us here under three headings jesus makes a sacrifice that surpasses in its effectiveness the sacrifices of the old covenant that's verses 5 to 10 then in 11 to 14, we see Jesus has a priestly ministry that surpasses in its effectiveness the ministry of the old covenant. And then in verses 15 to 18, that Jesus brings by his work a new covenant that surpasses the old covenant in its provision for relationship with God. Now, these are all ideas we've met before in verses 7 to 9 but he's bringing them together here for us so we can, in a sense, feel the greatness of Jesus and the wonder of what he's done for us. Consequently, he writes, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he adds, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The purpose of Jesus' incarnation the purpose of the coming of the eternal Son of God into the world by taking on our flesh, 
the Son himself, Christ, has said in his word, is to do God's will. That is, to die. That's right, Jesus was born to die. But think about the greatness and the humility of Jesus presented in these verses. Our author says it is Jesus speaking in scriptures. When Christ came into the world, he said, it is Jesus speaking through the Spirit in Scripture in the words of Psalm 40, a psalm of David, a psalm of God's anointed ruler, a psalm written about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Think of that. This is Jesus speaking. Our author is saying, as he said at the beginning, Jesus pre-exists. He is the eternal Son. And yet, though he's the one for whom and through whom all things are made, it says here that he came to do God's will. He humbled himself in his coming to offer up his body on the cross for us once and for all. Jesus' greatness and humility. Oh, and the Father's love. This is the Father's will. I've come to do your will. From eternity, the Father has willed that his beloved Son should secure his people, should save sinners by his death, given him in love. And in offering himself, our Lord Jesus has made all the sacrifices of the Old Testament obsolete. The author brings them all together and lists them in verse 8. And it says that, well, he's done away with them, abolished them. Now, why? Why has Jesus rendered these sacrifices, rituals, obsolete? How can it be said to have abolished them? Well, it's because his one sacrifice is effective. It does the job. By that will, the Father's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been sanctified. Notice that we, that is, believers like the author, who includes himself with the congregation of believers. We have been, that is, we have become and continue to be sanctified, that is, made holy. The author's not thinking here, firstly, of moral transformation. No, he's thinking about what we need to be to be able to come into the, into the presence and live in the presence of the holy and just God. You see, once again, he's drawing on language and ideas from Israel's worship. Here from the book of Leviticus. You see, in the book of Leviticus, you'll see that for the you see categories, unclean, clean, holy. If the unclean came into contact with the holy, it was death. And even the clean to come into the, come into the presence of the holy had to be sanctified, had to be made holy by sacrifice. And only the holy could be dedicated to God, was fit for service, fit for his presence but here our author is saying that Jesus shed blood his death once for all on the cross has made believers holy not temporarily not until the next sin and not just in terms of externals you know what we wear or our kind of worship furniture no he says we ourselves our whole being we unclean because of our disobedience our failure to listen to trust God to obey him we have been made holy 
able to live in the presence of the holy God because of the surpassing greatness of the sacrifice Jesus makes, his sacrifice of himself, his body. And our author says Jesus continues having made that sacrifice to have a ministry that good that surpasses the ministry of the old covenant. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' ministry surpasses that of the old covenant priests because he has made that surpassing sacrifice, that single sacrifice for sins. He makes it once and only once there on the cross because it's effective. It deals with sin. And so as a consequence, he now sits in the presence of the Father. He is that priest after the order of Melchizedek that Psalm 110 speaks of, the priest king to whom all will submit, including one day death itself. Now, no priest of the old covenant ever sat. They always stood to sacrifice. And no priest of the old covenant could remain in the presence of God. But Jesus does. And so, as our author told us, He can save us for all time and completely. Everyone who comes to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That is, he always brings before the Father the effectiveness of that work done on the cross just by his presence in God's presence. Just by being the promised Messiah, the victorious saviour of his people who has conquered their foes through his death, just by being the Lord in the presence of the Lord. He is able to save his people for all time. And as the true minister, the true high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the priest who is also king, it says here he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But actually that mouthful holds together your eternal future and your present experience. God's once and for all work for you in his son and his realisation of that now in your life. Perfected for all time. What the law couldn't do, Jesus has done. Jesus, by his death, has equipped you for all time, forever, to live in God's presence, to enjoy the new heaven and earth. And even now, He is making you one of God's holy people, sanctified, not by your efforts, but by his blood-bought gift, being brought to live now as his followers, actually being brought to be the place where God's Holy Spirit can dwell. Again, think how great the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus is. It makes believers eternally secure. And it changes them in the present. And that's brought out in the verses from Jeremiah 31 that 
our author quotes at the end of this summary. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Now you may remember that our author had given a very lengthy quotation of Jeremiah 31 in chapter 8. At the conclusion of this section, he's now shortened that quote to focus on those elements of the new covenant that help you see the surpassing greatness of this relationship with the Almighty God that Jesus has brought into being by his death and includes his people in. What are the features that he emphasises? Well, a changed heart. By the work of God, we will be, believers in Jesus will be the people who can live in relationship with him. Believers will have that new heart where we love God and want to do his will. And God himself, because of Jesus' death, guarantees to bring that about. So never again by rebellion and apostasy will God's people be driven away from God's presence and lose his blessing. A changed heart. Oh, and yes, forever forgiveness. This is what will actually secure the relationship forever. God says, verse 17, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, to remember is to call to mind to act. And so God is saying it will never again come into his mind to condemn those who are his people through trusting Jesus. He's saying that they will be forever shielded from his righteous anger, always enjoying God's faithful, steadfast love, sin, never being an issue in their relationship with him again. And he adds, doesn't he, to make sure we know why the old covenant's finally and fully done with. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where the new covenants come into existence, there's no need, no place for the old and the sacrifices made under the old covenant. And so there's no place for the priests of the old covenant, no need for us to make sacrifices. Oh, and no security in our doing, only in receiving what Christ has done. And in receiving what Christ has done, receiving the forgiveness he offers. Well, even in this summary, even if you've been faithfully following the argument of the book of Hebrews, especially from chapter 7, there's still a lot, isn't there? So let's pause so that I can get you to ask yourself that second question. Do you really get what Jesus has done for you as a believer? Three words that you need, in a sense, to know the truth of for yourself sanctified, perfected, forgiven. All speaking of what God does for believers in Christ, of his work and gift. And so if you're a believer, is that how you know yourself? Is that how you think about yourself as a believer in Jesus? Sanctified. If you're sanctified, then the gate of heaven, the doorway into the presence of the almighty God, has been opened to you by Jesus. 
And that's true whatever your background. Sometimes we can feel defiled, unclean, either because of what we've done or because of what others have done to us or even just because of what keeps bubbling up out of our hearts into our consciousness. And that affects us, doesn't it? It makes us ashamed to be in the presence of others, especially others whom we think have no idea of what we've done or what we've experienced and and actually wouldn't want to know us if they knew. And so feeling that way, we can stay on the margins of our fellowship, hold ourselves at a distance. And yes, that sense of our uncleanness can make us ashamed in the presence of God, make us reluctant to come to him, to come to the only one in whose welcome we can find peace and an enduring love. Where the defilement is deep, We can have trouble believing that we're actually accepted. But hear God speak in his word. By that will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hear God speak. Believe him. If you believe in Jesus, you should not hold back from coming to God. Jesus has opened the way for you. He has made you fit to belong in God's presence and, yes, to belong, to be welcomed amongst God's holy people. He's done it. And, yes, sometimes we can feel like we have no future, that we can never attain to the life and hope the gospel promises. We look at our weakness, our inconsistency, our lack, our unworthiness. Again, hear God speak in his word of what his son has done. By a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Not just perfected for a moment, that moment when you might feel particularly conscious, you know, that you're a believer. No, not just perfected for a moment. This is, God's word says, this is what Jesus by his offering of himself in accordance with the will of the Father, has done. And so, believer in Jesus, know that Jesus has made you fit to live in the new heaven and earth. It's not your strength or effort, your wisdom or might that will get you there. It is his blood-bought gift. A future so glorious that you can't imagine it. But he says by his death, he makes you fit for that new heaven and earth. So is that the way you think about your future? And when confronted by your weakness and frailty, have you trained yourself to honour Jesus by looking to his sacrifice so that you don't give up saying it's all too hard and you'll never make it? No, you look to Jesus who has perfected you. Oh, and when you're tempted because you don't want to think of the consequences to deny your weakness, to pretend to be better and stronger than you are, can you embrace the freedom of truth by finding your security in what Jesus has done? Perfected. Sanctified, perfected, forgiven. Uh, did you see Carol Flanagan uh, at the Royal Commission this last week? You remember? 
the mum who wanted to help her daughter with a business loan. You remember that gruesome interview, the footage? Did you see all the grief and the fear and anxiety of knowing you have a debt that you cannot, could never repay? That's what you saw in Carol Flanagan's testimony. Oh, yeah, they eventually worked out a compromise with the bank. But you can feel how different it would have been for Mrs. Flanagan, how much better it would have been if the bank had said, Mrs. Flanagan, you are forgiven. We will bear the loss. Now, that's not likely to happen with the bank, is it? And uh, the shareholders would be very unhappy if they started to make a habit of it, wouldn't they? But think, our debt to God is so much greater. It's incomparably greater. It's, it's a moral debt. It's not a financial debt. It's a debt to a generous love that has given us life and every good thing. And we've only returned for that love, wanting to get God out of our lives, not wanting to listen to him. We could never repay the debt. We can never make up for our thanklessness, our dismissal of God, our ignoring of him, our determination to do the opposite of what he says, our desire to establish ourselves as our own rulers in place of him. We can never make up for that debt to his goodness and love. And you know, as soon as you're conscious of that debt, when God gets into your consciousness, as soon as you're conscious of that, there's no rest is there. Just the grief and the fear and the anxiety of a debt you know you can never repay and yet must be paid. There's a day of reckoning. But for those who turn back to God by listening to and trusting his son Jesus, believing the gospel that he's died for their sins and risen again, God says that debt is forgiven. Fully, freely. God pays the price in the death of the Son. He suffers the loss. I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And we are forgiven. No catches, no hidden clauses, forgiven for all and forever. Do you know that? Think. Believe if God has forgiven you, why are you still accusing yourself? And why are you still avoiding God? Why are you still acting like the debtor who won't go to the letterbox to open the mail for fear it's just another bill he can't pay? Why are you acting like that? Not listening to him, not drawing near to him. In your heart, do you know the joy and the thankfulness of being forgiven, really? forgiven, sanctified, perfected, forgiven. All the actions of God, all the gift of God, all the fruit of Jesus' work, not your own, his once and for all finished work, his shed blood on the cross. Believer, do you know in your heart that this is what God has done for you? And if you feel your uncleanness, if you know dread of the future, if you're oppressed by consciousness of your debt to God's justice, 
why not turn to Jesus? Why not actually trust him? And if you say you do know you're sanctified, perfected, forgiven, does that show in your life? How should it show? Well, God tells us here in his word. And let's get a sneak preview of what's coming next week. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence by, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you hear that? Those who believe what Jesus has done for them, that he's opened up the way securely into the presence of God. Well, they'll draw near to God confidently, assured of a welcome, of being heard. They'll pray. Oh, yes, and they'll hold fast to the confession of their hope. They'll have a different life because they have a different goal. And, yes, they'll live other person-centred lives and live it together with other followers of Jesus. Stirring one another up to love and good deeds. But more of that next week. Do you get the greatness of what Jesus has done for you? Sitting here, saying here, here because you trust Jesus. You may not have a first-hand knowledge of the old covenant to compare Jesus to. In fact, that's very unlikely, isn't it? But Jesus brings, because of who he is and because of his death and rising, what no one else, what no other teaching or philosophy can do. He sanctifies you. He fits you for the presence of the Holy God. He perfects you. He equips you to live in the new heaven and earth, which his continuing priestly work guarantees for his people. And yes, he forgives you because he has borne the cost that only man should pay and only God can pay. Do you get that? Do you know that for yourself because you believe the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and has been raised from the dead and is exalted now at God's right hand? You've listened to God's word. Do you know, if you say you trust him, the joy, the peace, the thankfulness and hope of those who know they've been sanctified, perfected, forgiven by Jesus' death, his offering of himself once on the cross and his continuing high priestly work in the presence of the Father for you. Do you know that joy and peace and thankfulness and hope? And if you're sitting there saying, no, I, well, what stops you? Take the time to turn over this word in your head. Take the time to actually think, sanctified, perfected, forgiven. Pray that your Saviour 
would deepen your understanding of what he's done for you so that you will live a confident life of his follower and you will give him the praise and the thanks that is his due every day. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, these aren't words that occur so often in our language, sanctified, perfected, forgiven. They take some thinking about. And gracious Father, we know that of ourselves we're just so preoccupied with our own lives in the present that we can just pass over them. But we pray that you would so deepen our understanding of what Jesus has done, deepen our capacity to know him and to know the wonder of his work, that we would live every day as people who through trusting the crucified Jesus are sanctified, perfected, forgiven and know every day the joy and thankfulness and confidence of those who trust him. We ask this in his name. Amen.